Stories from California Cattle Country is produced by the California Cattlemen's Foundation and receives support from the California Cattle Council. We've created this podcast for those wanting to connect with the people and practices of far-flung ranches and dairies in California through hearing stories from and learning more about the families of cattle country. Many of the ranchers I've interviewed continue to ranch because that's what they do, meaning that's what their parents did and what their grandparents did and so on. Many of these operations could be easily liquidated and the seller being well compensated. I've heard countless times from ranching families that they do what they do because it's a way of life. Growing up, I first remember my father selling farm insurance, and then he sold hair plugs, and then before he retired, he was selling health insurance. I mean, at least I think it was health insurance. The point is, is a job is a job. You go to work, and you come back home, and you get a paycheck. It wasn't a lifestyle. Any fulfillment was largely dictated by how big the paycheck was at the end of the month. Nick Avdis is a land use attorney by day, and a rancher, well, the rest of the time. His family's been ranching in North Sacramento for decades, and all the while, suburban sprawl was fast approaching. Nick said that he never had an interest in becoming a lawyer until his parents' ranch was taken from them through eminent domain to address flooding in the area. His parents, who were Greek immigrants, not proficient in the English language, were unaware of the seizure until they found a padlock on the gate. Kind of reminds me of that scene from the 1993 drama The Firm, when mentor Avery Toller, played by Gene Hackman, asked a new hire, Mitch McDeer, played by Tom Cruise, on why he became a lawyer. What led you to law school? I can't remember. Sure you can, counselor. As a delivery boy for pizza parlor, one day the owner got a notice from the IRS. He was an immigrant. Didn't know much English, even less about withholding tax. And he went bankrupt, lost his store. That was the first time I thought of being a lawyer. In other words, you're an idealist. I don't know any tax lawyer who's an idealist. When he lost his store, I lost my job. That scared me. Being out of work? No. What the government can do to anybody. I met Nick at a small but well-curated farmer's market at the North Natomas Regional Park. A large modern park with an aquatic center, play areas, and baseball fields. And on this day, I caught a few minutes of a spirited softball game. When I walked up, Nick was erecting his pop-up tent, occasionally scanning the market for a coffee vendor. One never came. The market is situated under a large permanent shade structure, accommodating a few dozen vendors that range from topical CBD products to seasonal slushies. There's also beef. The Avis booth is simple. A couple tables, two coolers full of frozen product, and a display ice bucket with items for perusal by passers-by. It's one of my favorite things. I'll do that. I have some different size. I think I have a few roasts. This one's yeah. larger at four pounds. This one's smaller at three. Nick and his wife, Nikki, take turns chatting with potential customers about their operation, which is situated only a few miles away from the park. I was surprised that the majority of the customers knew of the Avises, their product, and were returning customers. Avis Ranch beef is grass-finished which makes for a product with different flavor and properties than the more common grain-finished beef. This is not to say that one process and the product that ultimately comes from it is better or worse. It's just down to the customer's preference. 
After the market, we drove a few minutes through an area of suburban master planning into one surprisingly rural, especially for residing in the city of Sacramento. In fact, the road leading to his ranch bifurcated sprawl on the left with his ranch property on the right. The parcel just west of his property, which his animals once grazed, is now being graded by heavy machinery preparing the land for development. In fact, you might be able to make out the sounds of the graders, dozers, and compactors in the background of the interview, which we recorded in his front yard in the shade of a tree. Nick's ranch is on the smaller side of ranching operations we visit. His operation is also unique in that Avis Ranch sells their beef directly to the consumer opposed to at an auction. We pulled up to his home and were greeted by his children, Vasia and Spiro, both wearing Carhartt overalls and boots. They were preparing a large water trough to house incoming group of chicks. Nick later explained that his kids sell free-range chicken eggs as a side hustle. Nick had the kids pull a side-by-side out of the storage shed. They gassed it up for a tour of the ranch. In this episode, we discuss the intricacies of direct-to-consumer sales, the appeal of the ranching lifestyle, and the seemingly shaky future of a small city ranch under a looming shadow of suburban sprawl. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this story is from California Cattle Country. We're at the Abdus family, and you're here today at Abdus Ranch. Um, I'm Nick Avdis. I'm Vasya Avdis. And I'm Spiro Avdis. And Nikki Avdis is at the farmer's market today. So a little bit about our ranch. We've been ranching these lands for three generations. Um, we're Greek immigrants of Greek descent. My dad had an uncle and immigrated through Ellis Island in the teens and worked his way west and ended up buying a ranch uh, here on the edge of uh, Rio Linda and Natomas in Sacramento County uh, before World War II. Uh, I never had any kids and uh, my dad was brought here to work in the 70s. We're continuing the family legacy here. We raise cattle. Uh, We do have some sheep and we also have a a horse boarding operation as well. We talked a little bit about your family. You have a full-time job other than than, than ranching. Can you explain what you do? Uh, Yeah, I've been actually a practicing land use attorney for, uh, for 20 years now. It's uh, you know certainly hard to make a living just straight ranching, but it's a lifestyle for us, and we put it as a priority to raise our kids uh, in this environment, and we love it, um, but you do need a day job. And we spoke about a little bit about it before, and I think it's an interesting part of your story. Can you explain your reasoning for becoming a land use lawyer? Uh, yeah, interesting history. Uh, in the tour that I, I gave you earlier, you saw uh, a portion of what used to be our ranch, and it, it's now... Um, Uh, a giant lake. In the mid-90s, the Sacramento Area Flood Control Agency actually condemned our main ranch to use it as a borrow site to reinforce the levees in Natomas. The property was taken by eminent domain, and uh, my folks, uh, who spoke little English, showed up one day literally, and there was a padlock on the gate. Now, certainly, we worked it out and got our animals, and but it was a a very traumatic uh, collective experience for the family, and um, it really drove my desire to be a lawyer because I really thought that uh, my parents were taken advantage of uh, because they didn't uh, speak English and I wanted to make sure that didn't happen to other people and it really fueled my interest in land use law and I've been doing it for 20 years and I just represent property owners. I was telling some friends that I was coming out to Natomas, which is, you know, Sacramento, and to go, you know, see about some cows. A lot were surprised that there were cows 
in Sacramento. Yeah, we're actually where we're sitting right now. We're at the house on the ranch and we're in the city limits of Sacramento in a portion of the city that has very few remaining ag properties. And I think we're the only operating commercial cattle ranch in the city limits. So it does have some advantages. I mean, uh, I'm close to my office. We're less than 15 minutes from downtown. There are issues living in a city and operating cattle ranch in the city, especially when it comes to uh, different regulations and whatnot that, um, you know, I have to explain to a lot of people that just don't understand what it's like to operate a ranch. And uh, as you saw, also, we were getting encroaching uh, urban development. So houses are now popping up across the street. And we anticipate that, you know, we'll have issues as well with code enforcement and whatnot from smells, uh, use of water, things that folks that live in the suburbs aren't, aren't uh, familiar with. We started this morning, um, met you at a small farmer's market in Natomas, which is North Natomas, is uh, quite lovely and like, you know, really well designed. Can you speak to the reasoning behind direct sales at a farmer's market and the benefits that you get from it? Yeah, I think it was an evolution for us when my wife and I first moved out to the ranch. It was supposed to be temporary. We we actually wanted to move to the city. Once we has, uh, had kids, we made a decision that we wanted to live uh, the ranching lifestyle, and we ended up taking over the ranch from my folks. Primarily at that time, we had a cow-calf operation, and we sold our, our animals, frankly, as the way we had for years uh, at the auction. We started to feel that it was a shame to put uh, our our animals in the commodity beef market. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we do spend uh, a lot of time and effort uh, with our animals, and you can tell by their behavior. You know, you saw when went by, they weren't afraid of people. That's because we spend a lot of time with them, and and so as word got out in, in our circles, you know, friends would pop up, hey, well, hey, I want a whole steer, I want a half a steer. And we did that for a few years. And then we made a conscious decision to make the jump into direct retail sales just because we felt, uh, honestly, uh, we could make more money <laughs> selling individual cuts to directly to consumers. And I'd say over the last 10 years, we've been refining that. There have been challenges and it's been a learning process. But one thing we found, especially in the farmer's market here, it's a small one, but it puts us in direct contact with our customer base, which is really local. The people that buy from us really want to buy uh, local and they do want to buy grass finished beef. And, um, you know, we've we fit that market and gotten to know our customers. As you saw today, people would come up to, uh, and talk to us and see how the families are. I've gotten to know our customers. It's really that direct connection with our, our customers that we really value and really makes it worth the effort. It's very rewarding for us, frankly, to be able to do that. So you mentioned there that, you know, the animals are grass finished. All cows do at some point eat grass and do for the majority of their lifetime. But yours is grass finished. Can you speak to why is that your practice? The way we really focused in on, on the grass finished part of the market was, frankly, it was the way we've always done it in that sense. My folks and my my great uncle, my father's uncle, uh, did it that way because that was how it was primarily done. Corn finishing wasn't something we did. And frankly, I enjoy the flavor of grass uh, finished beef. And as I would tell folks about it, I realized, you know, it, it is a part of the market. It is a small part of the market. I mean, it is a different uh, experience for the consumer uh, for a grass finished product. But we found that the folks that we cater to are really looking for that we obviously have cheap access to water. One thing about having grass-finished beef is it's not so much as raising the cattle as, as much as it is growing the grass. And so we really enjoy that part of it as well. And um, we have found a niche in that market, and uh, we've done pretty well uh, at it.
what kind of thinking needs to happen before you have an animal cut and wrapped? You know, because the, there's different ways of doing it. And have you found success in some ways more so than others? Yeah, I t- I'll tell you, it was uh, when you make the decision to go to direct sales, it's actually more complicated than we even thought originally. Uh, when we first used to do holes and halves, those were uh, sort of on on the custom exempt side relative to a, you know, a, a slaughterer coming out and taking down the animal and harvesting it and then cutting and wrapping it at the facility that they have. And then the consumer would, would pick up the entire animal uh, from them. But, you know, obviously doing individual retail sales, we had to, you know, really get into the USDA regulated part of it. And man, that was a quite the learning experience uh, in terms of locating the actual slaughterer and then obviously a cut and wrap facility, both that were USDA facilities. And we've tried uh, uh, quite a few uh, trying to find the right fit. It's easy to say, uh, you want to sell those individual cuts, but a lot goes into it from selecting the right butcher to having the right cut and wrap facility to actually storing the frozen product and being able to keep it for a long period of time, which was a hurdle we had to get through. But yeah, we've actually evolved over time and we've found a, a great operation. Uh, Bruce Yip down at uh, Lepe's Meats is a has been a great fit for us. And in fact, uh, he's processing um, a few beef for us as we speak. And um, yeah, we're really happy with it, but it has been challenging over the years, definitely. You were saying that Bruce kind of would even steer you in a direction to try new products. Are there any kind of uh, surprising cuts or, or things that you didn't even know about yourself? I mean, obviously the the thing is the value add to the carcass. We do sell a lot of ground meat, but you know, and a lot of other different steaks and roasts. And we've you know, with Bruce's guidance, there's been different cuts that we've experimented with to really maximize the, the value of the cut rather than throw it in the grind or doing that. And through that experience, I think with the guidance of Butcher, you know, the thing about it, too, is the learning experience part of it, raising cattle, growing grass and raising cattle is how to cut a beef uh, to maximize the, the value, obviously, because we're in a business and we need to be able to maximize the value. And having a butcher that can actually walk you through that and frankly be pushy at times uh, to tell us to do things, which actually turned out to be great. So yeah, uh, it, it really matters who your butcher is. What I, I liked about your website was that you have pricing on there, but the, the offals are also, you know, they, uh, price tag. Uh, do they sell well? What kind of uses do they end up having? And, and do, you, do you have any favorites of, of your own? Yeah, on the uh, on the awful side, at least culturally, growing up uh, Greek, it was uh, it was always something that uh, we were exposed to. Awful's not something foreign. Uh, beef tongue or beef heart and liver and other organs uh, were just something you know par for the course when you took down an animal. And so when we started processing, you know, for us it seemed uh, like a waste to discard a lot of that. So we try to market it. It is it is tough. I mean, uh, again, it's a a specialty type of item and it doesn't appeal to you know all consumers obviously you know some of the things are that are my favorite i mean certainly the beef tongue and the heart when it's prepared uh right i mean there isn't a softer cut of meat than the tongue if you prepare it right and the heart it just has a, a flavor that you think so vasya you, you like, like the it tongue? too yeah, the tongue is good. how do you guys prepare it i mean i know i've had like um when we're down in like Bakersfield and stuff like that, we go to the Basque restaurants and they'll often have, it's just, you know, it's, it's thinly sliced. I think it's usually, I don't think it comes out hot. Uh, how do you guys do it? Uh, we prepare it, it, it. We do kind of thin what we prepare with a tomato sauce and it is, uh, you know, we, we do uh, boil it and we do uh, cook it with tomato sauce and a lot of seasoning, cut it very thin and it's, uh, 
it's delicious, but we serve it hot. We're in self-described, the, the Sacramento called itself the farm to fork capital. Um, we are in an incredible agricultural area. The restaurants here very much do care about where they source things and uh, that they try to stay as local as possible. With all that said, it always seems like that the producers and restaurants are perfect for each other and there seems like oh obviously the chef wants this product from here that that's makes you know it's a no-brainer and same for the the production side but what kind of issues do you run into when you're working with restaurants why isn't it as easy as as you would think yeah i mean being in the farm to four capital kind of proclaimed that way it is uh i think there people are very conscious about and restaurateurs we have some of the i think greatest restaurants in in northern california and beyond here in sacramento and there is a real desire to to source local and you know what that means uh, perhaps may vary amongst people i think some of the bigger challenges are actually being in a environment where you can actually meet a producer to meet a chef and understand the needs that a that a particular chef has and what the that particular producer can fill in that uh, with that need it is challenging at times i think so, uh, as producers uh, i don't speak restaurant ease you know i know my beef is good saying that and getting a restaurant to to buy my ground as an example that takes an effort we're fortunate um we, we're currently in one restaurant mateo's restaurant in uh, in carmichael and they've been great. We're the house burger there, and that's been a great experience. And, and really, it's, it's communication, uh, being able to communicate and understand what each other needs. And um, I think it's great. And I, I think there's a lot more opportunities uh, for producers that aren't being filled for that local sourcing. We often talk about ranches as being legacy operations and, and, and a lifestyle, and, and it's something that that continues. Now, after meeting your, your kids, they're both in Carhartt overalls, and they're doing work. They're, they're preparing to uh, put some chicks into some sort of thing, and I, I understand they were feeding the horses and things like that. Um, they seem to take to the lifestyle. How do you see the future of this area? I mean, with the suburban encroachment that's kind of happening is this an operations that's going to continue on this property yeah we especially with what's currently going on right next door to us in the development it is something we're we're talking about and what does it mean for our, our kids to continue this way of life i mean they've obviously taken to it you know my daughter for example yesterday i picked her up from school first thing she did when she got home is she went out and went horseback riding because she, because she could and that's her passion and she loves doing it and you know it is working for that next generation. As my parents worked and passed on the ranch to, to myself and my sister, you know, I also want to pass on that opportunity to my kids. But we're in a kind of an unfortunate or fortunate circumstance, depending on, we love the location, we love the lifestyle, but I don't know that my kids will be able to continue it in this location, given the pressures of, of the growth and then the challenges. For example, the property adjacent to us that you saw the development occurring on, you know, we uh, we had a grazing lease for, for the last 40 years on that property, 150 acres. Obviously, that, that impacted uh, our carrying capacity and the number of cattle we could raise. And while we don't know what the future holds, um, it is uncertain as to whether we can continue. But one thing's for certain, uh, my wife and I, our priority is our kids and uh, carrying on the, the family legacy. And if the kids want to farm, we're going to find a way to do it. This is, um, I think, the shortest drive you have out of Sacramento to get this kind of bucolic experience. It's really nice. And we're sitting out, you know, there's a 
there's a dog. Uh, I'm scratching a dog's ear right now, and there's some uh, some other animals surrounding us. But I want to thank you for letting me encroach on you and in coming to your place and for you uh, talking to me. No, I appreciate it, and I appreciate what, what the Cattlemen's Association and the foundation are do, doing for producers out there. You know, cattle ranching to me is not it's not one thing. We're uh, a very diverse uh, tapestry of different ways of doing things and filling different needs in the market. And yeah, I, I appreciate being part of this community and thanks for the chance to, to participate in this. How'd that go? Is that good? Oops, perfect. If you're on Instagram, give us a follow at Cal Cattle Country, where you can see video trailers of each episode and photos from our travels. We'll be back in two weeks on September 25th. Thank you for listening.